Welcome everybody to the Charles Perkins Centre and to a talk that's going to stimulate and really inspire us, I'm sure, Soda Politics in the US, Lessons from the Food Movement in Action. Our guest this evening, and you'll hear more about her in a moment, is Professor Marion Nessel. And most of you, I'm sure, have read um, Marion's books and know all about her. She's here from New York University and she's here as a Charles Perkins Centre Distinguished Visiting Professor. And tonight's event is co-presented between Sydney Ideas and Charles Perkins Centre and you've probably noticed there are hashtags appearing, or did appear anyway, earlier on the screen and please feel free to tweet. Before I begin, I'd like to acknowledge um, the traditional owners of the land upon which we meet. That's the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and their elders past and present. And I think it's really important for us to note that our first peoples in Australia actually lived until um, European settlement a life which was impeccable when it came to the way they fed themselves. They managed the habitat in a sophisticated way. Um, they had farming practices and food gathering um, practices which are now increasingly understood as being sophisticated and supporting the health of their peoples. And I, for one, found totally inspirational a book by um, Bruce Pascoe called Dark Emu. So if you get a chance to read that, please do. So tonight's lecture is named in memory of Nicholas Catchler. And Nicholas, um, his father, Dr Barry Catchlove, and his sister Penelope are here with us the evening, uh, this evening, along with Barry's wife, Louise. And I'd just like to really acknowledge their presence here. We enjoy the fact that they're here with us. And we also um, really, really um, are grateful for the contribution that Barry and the family have made to the support of early career researchers at the Charles Perkins Centre and at Sydney Medical School. So um, welcome to Barry and the family and thank you so much. So before we proceed, I wanted somebody who actually knew a lot about Marion to tell us about her and to give us some background and an introduction and to do that, I'd like to call upon our Professor and Chair of Medicines Use and Health Outcomes at the Charles Perkins Centre and the Faculty of Pharmacy, and that's Professor Lisa Barrow. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. Before I introduce Professor Nessel, I would also like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation on whose land this university is built. So Marion is the Paulette Goddard Professor of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health at New York University. And I invited uh, Marion to come and do a sabbatical with us. I just sent her an email and said, hey, would you like to do a sabbatical with us? And the reason I did that is because we do empirical investigation of influences on scientific research and how that research then influences health policy. And we've done a lot of work related to tobacco policy, pharmaceutical policy, chemical policy, and more recently related to non-communicable diseases. And Marion, of course, is a perfect fit with that work because she is an expert uh, in nutrition. 
So she studies the political, the socioeconomic, and the scientific influences on food choice and food policy. And not only is that relevant, it shows we have a real uh, affinity for both uh, loving controversy. So these are not uh, dull areas, any of these. Now one of her earliest books, Food Politics, was very influential in exposing the influences uh, on decisions we make about what we eat and making us aware that public health uh, decisions in this regard, um, we need policy and we need regulation to really change um, the way we eat for the better. So Marion is not only a scholar, she's published several books as you see here, uh, but she's also quite a media sensation. Uh, many of you probably know that, you've been reading about her over the weeks she's been here. And uh, she's received many, many uh, accolades, so I'll only tell you uh, about my two favorite ones. One is that she was a public health hero in, in 2011, and she's also known as one of the highest ranked foodies in the world. So this evening, uh, Marion's going to talk about the topic of her most recent book, uh, Soda Politics. Thank you, Mary. Because it's, whoops, 
that's current in Australia also. And I was very, very interested to read in the Australian newspapers that your indigenous affairs minister had made the statements that sugar softies were killing the population in remote areas. And this was based on what didn't get into the progress and priorities report closing the gap. And advocates complained so much about it that the minister actually made a comment on it. I thought that was right on target. Now, one of the reasons why I write about sodas or soft drinks, as you call them, and I'm going to have to try to keep remembering, you call them soft drinks, uh, is because they're what we in public health call low-hanging fruit. That is, they have sugars and water and nothing else, and lots and lots and lots of sugar. They're also an international company um, with marketing all over the world. Now, the sugar issue is an interesting one, and I have so much trouble remembering, I, I can't get my head around how much sugar there is in these soft drinks, um, and I finally had to memorize that it's five sixths of a teaspoon of sugar per ounce or every 30 milliliters, and here are the piles of sugars shown um, in front of the various sizes. Uh, these sugars are hidden by the flavoring, and by the coloring, most people have no idea how much sugar there is in these drinks. Um, now, we have dietary guidelines in the United States, and these guidelines came out quite recently, and like most of the dietary guidelines over the course of the last 30 years, uh, these talk about eat more when they're talking about foods, eat more fruits, vegetables, whole grains, and plant foods, but they switch to talking about nutrients when they're talking about what you're supposed to eat less of. So that they suggest eating, um, limiting your sodium to 2300 milligrams a day. They don't talk about limiting the major sources of sodium in diets, snacks, and junk food. They talk about limiting saturated fat to 10% of calories, but they don't say anything about hamburgers or dairy products. And then when it comes to sugars, they say limit added sugars to 10% of calories, and they say very, very little about sugary drinks or limiting sugary drinks. And the reasons for that have to do with politics, pure and simple. Now, the dietary guidelines make it clear that sugary drinks comprise a very large percentage of sugar intake. Beverages, in general, account for almost half of sugars in American diets, and sugar-sweetened beverages alone, almost 40% of the sugar that's in diets. And yet the dietary guidelines do not, because they cannot say, drink less sugary drinks. Uh, the industries that make those drinks would complain too much. Nevertheless, the word is out. And in the United States, uh, sales of sugary drinks have gone down, and they've gone down for the last 10 or 15 years. They peaked just before 2000, and since that time, sales have been dropping steadily and are continuing to drop. Uh, and this is true of total sugary drinks, or, or total carbonated drinks, regular drinks, which are the ones that are sugar sweetened, and also diet drinks. Sales of diet drinks are also going down. The average consumption per capita 
in the United States of sweetened beverages is one 12-ounce drink a day per capita. That means everybody. It means people who drink a lot of soda, people who drink little soda, uh, little tiny babies, men, women, everybody. Uh, an average of uh, one a day of uh, 360 milliliters or one 12-ounce drink a day. Half the population doesn't drink sugary drinks at all, which means that the other half is drinking much, much more, and it's that half that we public health people are worried about. Now, advocacy comes into this because advocates against uh, consumption of sugary beverages have been very active in the United States, and there are lots and lots of groups working on this as well. As I'll explain. This one, I believe, comes from the Center for Science and the Public Interest, and it makes its point um, about particularly Coca-Cola, which is a very easy target for this. Coca-Cola put names of people on the cans, and these are the names that Center for Science and the Public Interest think ought to be on the bottles. Now, those, the soft drink industry is completely aware of advocacy about this issue and has known about it for quite a while. I first saw the industry's reaction to anti-soda advocacy in 2007 when a marketing executive of Coca-Cola gave an interview to Advertising Age, the trade publications and the advertising trade, and talked about how the Achilles heel of the soft drink industry was obesity. Used to be that these companies could say, We're not holding a gun to your head if you want to, you know, we're not forcing you to drink our products. If you're drinking our products and take fat, it's your fault. Um, but now they can't get away with that anymore. Advocacy has brought the issue of marketing to public attention in a way that has made these companies quite vulnerable. Uh, or as she put it, it's a huge, huge issue for these companies. Uh, the best evidence for that comes from, of all things, the annual filings of the Security and Exchange Commission. Publicly traded companies in the United States are required by law to report to the Securities and Exchange Commission every year uh, all the factors in society that are threatening their profits. And since 2003, at least, Coca-Cola has listed obesity as the number one potential threat to the company's profits. Researchers, health advocates, dietary guidelines are all complaining that sugary beverages have something to do with obesity, and this is a threat to our profits. So they're very, very well aware of that. Uh, and they are also aware that they are under extraordinary scrutiny. Uh, they're under scrutiny from the business press, worried about what's going to happen to their profits if people stop, really stop buying products from Coke and Pepsi. Uh, they're under scrutiny for their marketing to children. Um, the, both Coca-Cola and PepsiCo have said in the United States they will not market to children under the age of 12 on television programs aimed at children under the age of 12. And by all reports, they are not doing this, and they are sticking to that promise. However, with that said, there are many other ways to market to children, and both companies are deeply involved in activities that are aimed at marketing to children. And any number of reports have 
uh, are holding the companies accountable on this. One of them comes from the Rudd Center now at the University of Connecticut, which did an evaluation a couple of years ago on evaluating uh, the company's promises and how they're being met. And they found ample evidence for continued marketing to very young children. Toys are the most obvious example. And then sports figures and music figures are another example. Um, and that, of course, brings us to the whole question of increasing scrutiny of the ways in which soft drink companies are marketing to members of minority groups. In the United States, this has a long history dating back at least 50 years. It's a very complicated history. And I titled the chapter in Soda Politics on this topic, um, Marketing to African Americans and Hispanic Americans, a complicated story because it really is one. Uh, but you have some of the same kind of thing here, and I'll show the slide again, uh, where it's obvious that soft drink and other companies are marketing deliberately to low-income minority populations in Australia as well, and there are many, many parallels. Uh, but the most scrutiny in recent years, um, and the most public scrutiny, has come from the soft drink industry's practice of, of paying for research that uh, comes out in favor of the company's interest. And this is part of the reason why I'm here and working with Lisa Biro uh, is because this is an issue, an issue that interests me very much uh, right now. Now, the New York Times, which is a major national newspaper in the United States in August, published a front page story on Coca-Cola's funding of researchers at the University of Colorado and other universities uh, who formed part of something called the Global, Global Energy Balance Network, whose job it was to say that it didn't matter how much you ate or drank, you didn't have to pay any attention to eating less or drinking less sugary drinks, all you had to do was be a little bit more active and obese, your obesity would magically disappear. Um, and this was extremely shocking. It was shocking to reporters, and I know, and I know this, because I talked to about 30 reporters in the week after the story came out, and I can tell you that if they weren't business reporters, they were truly shocked. They could not believe that Coca-Cola would fund researchers in this way. They could not believe that researchers would accept funding from Coca-Cola in this way, and they could not believe that the universities would allow university professors and researchers to accept money in this way. They don't know much about how universities are operating in this way. But it was so shocking that even Fox News was shocked. Uh, it has had the most extraordinary fallout, and the fallout is continuing up until this very moment. Uh, the first thing that happened was that Mutar Ken, who is the chief executive of Coca-Cola International, wrote an op-ed for the Wall Street Journal in which he said, we're completely taken aback by this story. We had no idea this was coming. We realize that what we've been doing isn't being viewed as credible. So we must and want to do better. Um, we're committed to publicly disclosing the support that we're providing, and we will be publishing this information shortly. An amazing statement. Even more amazing, because within just a month 
published and they did exactly that. Um, they published on a website, on their Coca-Cola website, if you Google Coca-Cola Transparency, this website will pop up and leave yourself some time to scroll through it because it's riveting. I don't know how else to put it. Um, it lists all of the organizations that funded in the United States. There are probably 1,200 organizations. So when you scroll and scroll and scroll and you're only through the needs and you still have a long way to go. And it listed all of the health professions that it funded and scientific experts. And a group called Ninjas for Health, I have no idea what they are, uh, did an analysis of this list and discovered that 55% of the individuals who were funded by Coca-Cola in the United States were dietitians and a smaller number were academics and so forth. Um, and of course, that should ring a bell here because a couple of years ago, Michelle Simons, a lawyer in San Francisco, did a report on the Dietitians Association of Australia in which she talked about food industries, the food industry's relationship with the Dietitians Association of Australia uh, and talked about the ways in which what the organization was doing was compromised by those relationships. She started to say she did the same thing for the United States dietitians and for United States researchers. And that, that also has had a great deal of fallout because um, the Dietitians Association in the United States has come out with a new policy that looks really good on paper and hopefully really good in action on how to deal with relationships with industry and the American Society for Nutrition is developing a similar policy, or one that I hope will be similar. So that has some action. Um, the Transparency Initiative revealed that groups such as the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, American Academy of Pediatrics, and American Academy of Family Physicians were all funded generously by Coca-Cola. And within those organizations, there have been substantial portions of the membership who have objected to that partnership and didn't think that their organization should be taking money from Coca-Cola. And um, in September, by the end of September, Coca-Cola announced that it was ending the financial sponsorship of the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, but it also ended its relationship with the pediatrics and family practice physicians groups. Um, or those groups ended the relationship. Both sets of them are arguing about which one <laughs> first. And I talked to the president of the American Academy of Pediatrics, and he said the Academy already decided not to take Coca-Cola funding, but Coca-Cola announced it first. Um, not pretty smart of them. Uh, the next thing that happened, and now we're into November, is that the University of Colorado returned its million-dollar gift to the Global Energy Balance Network. We gave it back to Coca-Cola, which in turn gave it to the Boys and Girls Clubs of America. And you can imagine why that would be a welcome gift and a useful gift. Um, and then the Associated Press thought that since the New York Times had so much fun with open records requests, um, these are requests for public information where if somebody wants uh, information and private information from a public university, they're allowed to get it by law. And the Associated Press asked for emails between the Global Energy Balance Network uh, 
researchers at Coca-Cola. And these emails were incredibly embarrassing and showed that the researchers had a very close personal relationship with executives of Coca-Cola. Here's a statement from James Hill. Dr. James Hill was one of the researchers um, in which uh, he was quoted as saying that he wanted to help the company uh, avoid the image of Coca-Cola being a problem and make it part of the solution. And this was viewed so uh, critically by magazines that New York Magazine uh, had commented on that these were desperate to please emails to their corporate masters from uh, obesity, co-funded obesity researchers. You should be getting an idea from this about how embarrassing all of this was for everybody involved. The next thing that happened was that uh, Coke fired, well, maybe, maybe not, but somehow the chief scientific executive of Coca-Cola resigned. Um, and this happened at the end of November also. And she was quoted in the New York Times uh, um, story as saying that we're having, this is a political campaign that we're doing with these researchers. We will, we will develop, deploy, and involve, she's a great speaker, a powerful and multifaceted strategy to counter radical organizations and their proponents. I guess by that, maybe she means me? <laughs> I guess so. Anyway, she's now out of the picture. Too bad, she was fun. Um, the next thing that happened was that Coca-Cola said they weren't going to fund the Global Energy Balance Network anymore, and they pulled it out of it. So the Global Energy Balance Network was history. Um, the New York Times wrote an editorial uh, sort of talking about the whole thing um, and how Coca-Cola's relationship with the Global Energy Balance Network had been just a public relations nightmare for the company, which it certainly has been. Uh, and then it moved overseas. Uh, the Germany press started reports, so I think when Germany starts asking for the same level of transparency as we got in the United States, and uh, they got it, and the press started reporting that Coca-Cola had paid millions to German health researchers, and this was one example of Chate, which had collected a million euros from Coca-Cola. Um, and the Coca-Cola Foundation quite recently came out with its report for who it had funded in 2015. And there were a number of Australian organizations on this list. Um, the Australian Indigenous Mentoring Program, the Australian Paralympics, and so forth. Um, but this was just the American Foundation. The real question is, what is the Australian Coca-Cola Foundation uh, doing? And, you know, I've been talking to everybody about you should ask. And fortunately, reporters to the Sydney Morning Morning Herald did. Uh, and Marcus Stone and Patrick Hatch wrote this big article about the Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola isn't telling you about its health funding in Australia on the front page of the Sydney Morning Herald. And in that, the reporters attempted to find out who was being funded in Australia. This is really gossipy and fun. <laughs> um, and they asked the Australian Coca-Cola people to release this, this information in Australia the same way it had been done in the United States. 
and quoted uh, the, there's a terrific little video that goes with their article. That, and they quoted this person as saying, we're working to disclose this information. It's a lengthy process. It is a lengthy process, and part of the reason for that is that Coca-Cola is asking permission of every group that it funds to reveal these things publicly. Um, so this is kind of fun. Um, and then somebody sent me, uh, someone here sent me said, uh, an email saying, I know you're interested in this, you might be interested in this program. Um, so this is an example of what's being funded in Australia. A new program called designed to get teens riding bicycles. We believe that the more you move, the happier you feel. I believe that too. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, so has been just as um, as busy here as it is in the States, working on the happiness, amongst other things. Now I picked on Coca-Cola because it's a bigger company um, and because it's got involved in this public relations scandal. But PepsiCo is number two, and the reporters in the United States were very interested in finding out what was going on with PepsiCo. And they uh, discovered that PepsiCo has made it almost impossible to find out who it gives money to. But these reporters managed to find out that the American Cancer Society, the American Diabetes Association, and the American Heart Association all were taking uh, substantial and noticeable amounts of money from not the millions that proposed, but even hundreds of thousands or lots of thousands. Um, and Pepsi is doing the same thing. All of these organizations are health organizations that if you ask them would be saying really we should be cutting down on sugar and beverages or in the case of Pepsi, salty snacks. Uh, I don't know what the American Heart Association was doing taking that. Um, but there it is. Um, and then maybe Sunday Times had an article about a specific um, paper that Coca-Cola had funded. I mean, again, these things were coming out one after another after another. Uh, the company's public relations team must be just working overtime trying to figure out what to do about this. But this was an article in the Sunday Times in January saying that uh, about a landmark study that claimed that diet drinks might be better than water in helping people lose weight. Uh, was funded by a food industry task force whose members include representatives from Coca-Cola and Pepsi. There's the paper, does low energy sweetener consumption affect energy intake by the way. The group was conducted by an expert group of the International Life Sciences Institute, which is a, a, a task force, which is a, this is a group that takes lots and lots of money from the food industry. And the article said that if you disclose that the lead author of the paper also acts as co-chairman of the task force, and the authors were paid to do this. And this is exactly the kind of thing that we did here. This group is studying, and it's why I'm here, is to learn how she does this. But anyway, this is an example. Um, so I came away from all of this with a really odd view of, um, of, the, of Coca-Cola in particular, uh, this is Sandy Douglas, who is the president of Coca-Cola North America, and as part of the Transparency Initiative, he was assigned the job, actually he told me that he volunteered for it, he volunteered for the job of going around and talking to uh, critics and people like me uh, to try to listen to what the concerns were, to talk to us about the concerns. And I have to say, he's the nicest guy in the world. And he comes across as someone who is genuinely 
shocked by the revelations about the company's funding um, and wanting to do something, wanting to be part of the solution to the obesity problem, and certainly not wanting to be part of the problem. And so he's the Dr. Jekyll, um, just a really decent guy. And he's very, very proud of the fact that the company's sales of bottled water and other uh, non-core and low-calorie drinks are rising while the sales of their shoes and beverages are going down. And even more proud of the effort that they're putting into marketing the small eight-ounce cans. Um, what's that? 250 milliliter, 240 milliliter cans. Um, which are making vast amounts of money for Coca-Cola um, because they cost more. Um, I once talked to a food industry executive, not a Coca-Cola executive, somebody else, about why small portions cost more. And he said, well, people want small portions. They should be willing to pay for them. <laughs> uh, I should need another job. So anyway, he's very proud about all of this and it's working. Small cans are a good idea. Water is a good idea. Whether bottled water is a good idea, we can argue about from um, environmental, the environmental perspective, like a chapter in the book um, um, on the whole water issue. Uh, but in any case, that's the Dr. Jekyll part. The real concern is about the Dr. the Mr. Hyde part. What's going on behind the scenes? that maybe the front office executives don't even know about. I'll leave that as an open question. This is a slide of Mark Kirchick, who is a, a, a former anti-smoking, anti-alcohol advocate in, or alcohol abuse, advocate in Berkeley, California, giving a talk during, during Berkeley's soda tax initiative, in which he did a comparison of the playbook of the tobacco industry and how closely the food industry is following that playbook. Both fund front groups. Both use preemption, trying to get the government to pass laws that will preempt local groups from uh, passing stronger laws. Buying friends, and buying politicians, having a national strategy sales, and so forth and so on. In both cases, neither product is necessarily fatal, making it very, very complicated to deal with. I think so is just as software is just as complicated as tobacco to deal with and even more so. Um, some of the behind-the-scenes activities or Mr. High activities include lobbying, on which the software industry spends a fortune. Um, this was seen particularly in 2009 when the Senate was considering a federal tax on soda and the lobbying um, in, that, in the period of 1998 to 2015 shows this big peak in 2009, Pepsi on the top and Coca-Cola on the bottom, and the scale is $10 million. So in 2009, uh, PepsiCo spent about nine, each of them spent about $9 million on lobbying against the soda tax. Um, the American Beverage Association spent another 20. So altogether, there was about $40 million spent on anti-tax legislation that year. Uh, the Center for Responsive Politics, which has a really nifty website about this kind of thing, says that 
since 2009, PepsiCo has spent nearly $33 million the American Beverage Association, $34 million, et cetera, et cetera, on defeating any kind of legislation that would limit or put taxes on sugars or on sugary beverages. The, uh, we got, I live in New York City, normally, so I'm not living in Sydney, um, and I got to see the Mr. Hyde part of the soda industry in action during Mayor Bloomberg's abortive uh, attempt to put a cap on sugary sweetened beverages at 16 ounces. Somebody was going to have to multiply that by uh, 30 or to get milliliters. Um, but it's, uh, that was the idea of where to put the cap. This was not a ban, it was a cap. You could buy as many of that size drinks as you wanted. But it was immediately framed as a ban. Um, and it was framed instantly as a ban, particularly by this New York Times reporter who uh, wrote a lot of stories making it clear that he thought this was just a terrible idea. Um, also, front page story. So, the Bloomberg administration was surprised by the negative reaction because they had been doing public health measures for the last four or five years. Uh, they had all gotten national attention and were all working pretty well. They had banned trans fats, menu labeling, and they had a menu labeling proposal, and they had a whole series of subway campaigns on cutting down on sugary beverages. Uh, this one was the most recent. Portions of growing soils type 2 diabetes, which um, lead to amputation. This was a very controversial poster because somebody found out that the person who's uh, in the poster that this was photoshopped. He didn't really have an amputation. People seem to think that was very unfair. <laughs> <laughs> but in any case, these campaigns had been there, and the, uh, the mayor and the health department just were completely unprepared for the pushback on it, which was, in my view, naive of them. Um, and the pushback was really public. The first thing that the soft drink industry did was to attack the science. This was a full page ad in the New York Times from the American Beverage Association, uh, asking the question, what does sugar sweetened beverages have to do with obesity? Nothing, as far as the science that we pay for. Um, <laughs> then they defended self-regulation, another full page ad in the New York Times, uh, in which they said, we're going to reduce beverage calories in schools by 88%. They didn't mention in this advertisement just because they had to. Uh, and you don't need to regulate us. We're doing a much, much better job of regulating ourselves than you could ever do. Uh, and then finally, they attacked the critics. This was an advertisement, again, in the New York Times from the Center for Consumer Freedom, which is a front group for the um, National Restaurant Association, for sure. I have not been able to find out whether the soft drink industry was behind this ad. Because the Center for Consumer Freedom is set up in a way that it does not have to disclose where it gets its funding. Both Coca-Cola and PepsiCo uh, executives have denied that they had anything to do with this, but we don't know about the American Beverage Association, uh, which both of them support. In any case, this is the famous nanny ad. Uh, you only thought you lived in the land of the free. Uh, you don't need a uh, man, you need a mayor, this is the mayor. Uh, and Bloomberg had a sense of humor, he was asked that 
what he thought of this ad. And he said, oh, that ad. I would never wear a dress like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I really thought, uh, just living in the city, I got a personal mailing to a semi-personal mailing to my home. Uh, and if there's just 8 million of us living in New York City, 8 million times 45 cents or whatever it costs to mail one of these things, it's quite a lot of money. Uh, that all of the Pepsi and Coca-Cola trucks for months and months and months had these signs on them. There was an enormous social media campaign, you look at the old TV advertisements, there were airplanes flying overhead with banners. Uh, there were t-shirts that you could buy, there were moving marquee ads, uh, and there were hordes of college students out on the streets of New York uh, with petitions asking people to sign petitions to overturn the ban on sodas, uh, wearing these great t-shirts. I picked up my beverage of one myself, and I sent my uh, doctoral student out to interview them, and he had a couple of questions from you. Um, and they said this front group that was funded by the American Beverage Association. Um, and he asked how much they were being paid. And they told him that they were being paid $30 an hour. Not bad. Not bad. Um, the result of all of this was that the soda industry assumed. Uh, they took the city to court on technical grounds. And eventually, after a couple of years, the courts overturned. The uh, soda cap and it never, it never went into effect. What it did do was raise the discussion um, about whether people should be drinking sugary drinks. It brought the whole nanny state issue before and kept everybody very busy talking about it for a long time. Uh, but that was the end of that. Uh, now, I would give anything to know how much the soft drink industry spent on the New York anti-soda uh, cap campaign because it must have been a very large amount of money. And I know this because uh, whenever there's a ballot initiative, as there was in San Francisco and in Berkeley um, in the last election cycle, uh, whenever there's an election, the amount of money that is spent on promoting that one side or the other has to be revealed. And it was revealed that the, the software industry, Coca-Cola, Pepsi-Cola, and the American Beverage Association together had spent $11 million to, in, in an attempt to defeat the soda tax initiatives in San Francisco and Berkeley. The soda industry won in San Francisco and lost in Berkeley. I'll have something more to say about that in a bit. Um, but we have to ask the question, and the question that comes to my mind is why on earth would the software industry spend these ridiculous sums of money to defeat these, um, uh, these initiatives that probably wouldn't change sales very much? Um, and the reason is that Americans aren't drinking sodas to the same extent uh, that they were. Uh, if you're a publicly traded company, you not only have to make a profit for your shareholders, but you have to grow your profits every 90 days and report growth to Wall Street, and that just wasn't happening. It is, however, happening everywhere else in the world. And so the software industry, quite sensibly, is moving its marketing overseas. 
Uh, a new report in February this interest came out within the last couple of weeks called Marketing in the World, the marketing and health impact of sugar drinks in low and middle income com countries. Uh, there have been several articles about it as U.S. soda sales fizzled, Coca-Cola and PepsiCo target developing nations. And the, this report contains this very nice graphic of the amount of money that the software industry is spending in low and middle income countries to promote its products. And for the most part, these numbers are billions, not millions. They're spending billions of dollars to advertise it. For the last several years, I've been collecting newspaper articles about this. So here's here are some of my favorites. India has 1.2 billion people, but not enough to drink coke. They can never borrow that. PepsiCo is going to invest $5.5 billion in India by 2020. We've only scratched the surface of long-term growth opportunities. Coca-Cola is starting producing in Myanmar. Myanmar opened up to Coca-Cola just three or four years ago, and it is well established in that country then. Uh, PepsiCo has a deal to Crack the Vietnam beverage market, and Coca-Cola says it's going to invest more than four billion in China from 2015 to 2017. Billions, not millions. Um, this is uh, the most remarkable. This is from August 2014, where Business Day reported that Coca-Cola was raising its African investment to 17 billion, but this was on top of the 12 billion that Coca-Cola had already promised to invest in Africa from 2010 to 2020. If I add that up right, that's $29 billion in Africa from 2010 to 2020. Just think about what $29 billion, or even $17 billion, if that's what it is, could do uh, for development in Africa or any other developing country. Um, so I would be very depressed about this, except for advocacy. And in the United States, and in fact internationally, there are many, many, many advertising groups that also think that sodas are low-hanging fruit for public health advocacy and are uh, engaged in campaigns to try and encourage people to cut down on their sugar beverages. Many, many different kinds of groups. Um, the most successful advocacy campaign so far has been in Berkeley, California, where there was an election, a ballot initiative that won by 76% vote, which is an astounding majority. Berkeley did everything right uh, from an advocacy perspective. It framed the issue as Berkeley versus Big Soda rather than as a public health issue. Uh, and it did that so that as the um, soda industry came in and did its counter tax marketing, everybody could see that this was big soda exercising its, um, its muscle. But at the same time, it also did a lot of um, community organizing and advocacy based on the health issue. It canvassed in every single neighborhood in Berkeley, rich and poor. It left no door unlocked. Um, and it brought out this tremendous, um, it brought out a tremendous vote in which people voted for the tax 
because the tax was going to be used for public health purposes um, that would particularly target children in low-income communities. And that's exactly what's happened. Uh, the million dollars that was collected in the tax last year has gone to child health purposes in Berkeley's low-income communities. The other big success story is, oh, I don't know whether the consumption of uh, sugar drinks has gone down in Berkeley. It's impossible to tell because they have very much to do with it. The, um, in Mexico, where the consumption of sugar drinks, obesity, and type diabetes are very, very high, the Mexican solar tax has been uh, studied extensively, and a recent report says that um, the tax has been followed by a 12% drop in sales of these products. Um, this is considered an enormous success. At the same time, there are arguments about this, and there are lots of critics of what's going on. And Catherine Rich, who's chief executive of the New Zealand Food and Grocery Council, had an article in one of the papers that I read in New Zealand, um, I think, that said, Mexico, so the tax is really working. How come tax revenues are still rising? That's a good question. Um, and Coca-Cola in the United States is still reporting strong earnings, beating expectations, and they attribute those earnings to selling more and more bottled water and other kinds of bottled beverages, and also to marketing overseas, and to the small containers. So the story's not over yet, and there's still plenty of room for more advocacy. Um, I'm pleased to see that there's plenty of software advocacy going on in Australia. I just went online and Googled, and this is what I came up with. And I met some of you who I know are working on these campaigns. Um, and it's terrific that you're doing it, and I encourage you to keep at it, and in particular, to pressure uh, the solar companies to reveal who it is that they're funding here. That's something that would be really interesting to know. Um, and finally, I want to say something about advocacy in general, because I wrote um, sort of politics. Um, oh, I guess I should do a commercial. The publisher, for some reason, was unable to get books here, but there are flyers for the books here and in the back. End of commercial. Um, I wrote the book because uh, I'm interested in advocacy. And this is a tool, and advocacy against soft drinks uh, is a very, very good example of successful advocacy in action. And there are examples throughout the books of how it's done. There's sort of guidelines for what to do and how to go about doing it. And this is focused on one particular product. But I'm hoping that people will take the lessons from uh, the social story and apply those lessons to everything in the food movement in order to advocate for a food system that is healthier for people and the planet in every way possible. And I'm very pleased that in the United States, the advocacy groups that started out advocating for personal diets that were healthier have started to understand that in order to have people eat more healthfully, it's necessary to go beyond voting with your fork and also voting with your vote and getting involved in politics in order to create an environment that makes healthy choices and environmentally friendly choices the easy choices. Um, so you have to get political, um, and I'm hoping that you'll all run for office and do things like that. Um, and 
that's the message that I want to leave you with. 